The text on the table for this week is Exodus 5, with concentration by the teaching pastors on Exodus 5, 6 through 9. And the title of the sermon is The Impossibility of Evacuation. The major theme is that we must trust that God is in control, regardless of what we see. You are listening to the Brentwood Baptist Church Life Group Leader Podcast, a resource to equip and encourage group leaders on their journey toward being disciples and making disciples through life groups. So last week we learned how Moses was equipped. Uh, we dealt with some very deep waters. Last week I don't think it's going to be quite that way this week. Uh, we had to talk about sovereignty, free will issues last week with respect to Harold. With respect to Pharaoh's heart being hardened, we also talked about the strange or seemingly strange circumcision scene with Moses' wife and his son. Uh, But this week is a little more straightforward, so this week is a good opportunity to continue to drive people to the gospel. We can see echoes is what a lot of biblical scholars use. Um, Usually when we read the New Testament, we hear echoes of the Old Testament and vice versa. So here we can, we can in this passage, hear echoes of Jesus Christ's uh, person and work, his faith and his obedience. So it's going to be a, a powerful text to drive our people to thinking about their salvation and how they then uh, can call others to that same salvation and bear witness to the promise with the lost and searching people in their lives. First thing that looks a little bit weird is that Moses and Aaron get an audience with the Pharaoh, and that might seem bizarre because we've talked multiple times in the last number of weeks about how Pharaoh was the most powerful person probably in the world at this time, or at least the quote civilized world. I use that term loosely, uh, and yet Moses and Pharaoh seem to just to walk up and and get get a direct audience with him. However, it, it really wouldn't in that culture be that shocking Uh, Moses uses the term later so we really don't know how much time was there it may have been a larger gap than an hour obviously so it may have been a number of months it may have been a year for all we know point is to say Moses is telling us bound up in that term later there's some bulk there's some bulk amount of time but in the ancient Near East it's not that uncommon for kings to hear from people Uh, whether they be lowly or whether they be mighty people. So here's what the New American Commentary says. It might be thought unusual that Moses and Aaron would have the right to see the great king personally. After all, they were members of a hated and suppressed people group. The reason probably was not, so catch that, the reason Moses and Aaron were granted this audience was not related to Moses' long past status as an Egyptian princeling, but rather to a right of audience with a monarch in the traditional legal system of much of the ancient world. Kings were seen as expected to be available to the lowliest and greatest alike, a requirement that Israel's prophets use regularly, often in highly critical, confrontational ways, and sometimes even with the purpose of denouncing the king's own personal behavior. So what they're saying is in the ancient Near East with these sets of peoples around there, that it was built into their legal system, even if it was merely traditional, it was there and seemed to be acted upon, where pretty much anyone could get an audience with the king. Again, that's not to say that 
there isn't a long time lag. So it's not the case where you just send a letter that morning and say, I'll be there that afternoon. I need an audience with the king, maybe. But that these things were granted in time where essentially anyone could get an audience with the king. So Moses and Aaron do get that audience. They initiate the prophetic formula we see throughout Israelites' prophets, the rest of the Old Testament. Although there's only one other spot in Exodus where this formula occurs, and I think that that's it in the Pentateuch that it occurs. But that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, sort of the thus saith the Lord pattern of speech for prophets, because they were the messengers of God with a direct word and revelation of God. Uh, as the text wasn't present, even though the oral tradition would have been present. So they say, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go. And then so that they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. I think this is your first opportunity and a strong opportunity to make gospel ties here. Because a key idea in understanding the radical claims of Jesus about his own identity as truly divine is when he diverges from the traditional prophetic pattern. The traditional prophetic pattern, like we just stated, is thus says the Lord, and then give the command, give the idea, give the rebuke, what have you. Jesus, on the other hand, says, truly, truly, I say to you, and he does this all over the place in all of the Gospels, truly, truly, I say to you, and we think particularly of the Sermon on the Mount, you heard it said that, And then he would give sort of the base command, maybe from Moses. But I say to you, and if Jesus was a mere messenger of God, you would expect him to say something like, you heard that such and so was the law, but thus says the Lord, here's what he really meant by it. And that's not what Jesus does. He says, you've heard it this way. I tell you, I personally am telling you, this is what is meant by it. It's a really radical idea for a so-called prophet of God to talk that way, where Jesus is claiming the authority to interpret it to the extent to which a prophet would not have. I just want to grab one quick example of that. I'm in Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22. Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22. And this is the Lord's teaching on anger during the Sermon on the Mount. He says in verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And we can see this pattern. You have heard that it was said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. And so that would be the Ten Commandment, which is clearly still in effect. But then Jesus takes it upon himself to go further into that commandment, which I would argue is couched in the unchanging moral nature of God, and says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother uh, will receive this same judgment as those of murderers. So for Jesus to claim these radical, this radical authority in himself to, to do these sort of things is, is really incredible and it's it's clear why people were trying to stone him and why ultimately he was crucified because they understood exactly what, what he was claiming about himself. And sometimes we have a tendency to dial that back a little bit uh, when, when we talk about it. Pharaoh's response is very interesting in verse 2. Who is the Lord that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I don't know the Lord. 
And besides, I will not let Israel go. On the one hand, this verse is just a statement of fact. I, I don't know what God you're talking about. I haven't heard about this Yahweh that you're bringing up to me. And we get the all caps there, L-O-R-D, so it's Yahweh. I don't know about this entity. But then there's a more nuanced and underlying comment made by Pharaoh, particularly in the second part of that, I don't know the Lord. And he's not saying I merely don't know who he is. I've never heard of him. But he's also saying, who is this being such that I, Pharaoh, ought to submit to him? Who is this being such that I, Pharaoh, ought to submit to him? And this is where we have to do the hard work as teachers of keeping the cosmic battle in front of our people's eyes. That is not Moses versus Pharaoh. And it's really, in a way, not even about the deliverance of the Israelites, even though that's what this is all building towards. And that's the promise that God made. It is a cosmic battle between the one true God of Israel, Yahweh, the, the only God that exists, we say the Trinitarian God who exists, versus all the different gods of Egypt and all their paganism, and then the Pharaoh as a physical manifestation of those gods, uh, generally deified in himself. So it's a cosmic battle. And we we pay lip service to supernaturalism sometimes, I believe, in this culture, in what's called often the Western Church, which would be Europe and uh, the North America particularly the United States, we pay a we pay a general lip service to supernaturalism where, yes, we believe that God is true. Yes, we believe God hears prayers. Yes, we believe God is active. But we don't always respond explicitly to that. We don't always live as if there's a fight going on. We don't always live as if Satan is trying to kill us uh, essentially every moment of every day. And it's weird to think that way because in many, I mean, just where else in the culture do you hear it? I mean, our our supernaturalism in the culture are things like magic or um, superheroes and these sort of things, which people will just say, ah, obviously that's fantasy. So within the way we use supernaturalism in the Western cultures is largely for fantasies and storytelling. Not that you don't get morals out of those things, but... Um, it's all sort of taken for granted that it's not actually real. Whereas what we're saying from a biblical perspective is, is very much real, that there are principalities and powers active in this world that are trying to keep us from spreading the kingdom of God, that are out to oppress us. I don't believe they can indwell us as believers. Um, that's Maybe I shouldn't even open that door right now. Because I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go down there and chase it. But I think as believers who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that we can be oppressed very much so by demonic powers and the like. And we have to be bold enough and secure enough in our biblical understanding to be able to talk that way to our people. If they don't keep the cosmic battle in their minds, then I think it creates a I think it can be the beginnings of a status quo comfortable faith that doesn't actually cost anything where no real price is actually paid but if you understand yourself even though there may not be physical persecutions yet although the social persecutions are at our doorstep if not already active uh, some incredible stuff coming from the state capital s against uh, believers praying in public and the like um, generated by certain organizations in this country so social pressure is already there 
and they're coming more and more and more, kicking down the door as we speak. So even though the physical pressures aren't there of murder uh, for the sake of your faith or, or these sort of things, or maybe even imprisonment for the sake of your faith here right now, um, there is still a price to pay because when you choose the side of truth and light and submit yourself and your being and essence and worth and values all to the person and work of Christ, all to the Trinitarian Godhead, you're choosing a side in a war and the other side is not going to sit idly by and just let you let you excel in the in the in the mission of disciple making in the mission of recruiting more people to the truth side of the war so we we have to cuz i don't know who I don't know who else is going to do it uh we have to paint that picture of supernaturalism for our people that satan is after you Demonic powers are after you, but you stand in the presence and light of God. They all submit and bow to the person and work of Jesus, and that we need to constantly be preparing ourselves for the battle of fighting for souls in this world for the kingdom. And that means this is this is why Bible reading is serious, and not just to make you a better person. It's not just to help our people have better behaviors. Is because Satan's trying to kill you, and you need to you need to be have the sword in your hand as Paul would say uh, the power of the word to rebuke Satan just like Jesus did in the wilderness temptation and I would say likewise for the community of faith likewise for prayer likewise for Sabbath solitude and the rest it's not merely to get us tangentially in touch with what God's doing in our lives it's not to make us feel better or less discouraged and it's not just to produce a better set of behaviors but it's to make us and prepare us as soldiers to be active disciple makers in the war uh, of dark versus light. The New American Commentary has a great line in it, and it will sum this cosmic battle talk we've been having for the last couple of minutes. And here's the line. To him, meaning Pharaoh, so to him, Yahweh's words were not valid. They were just lies. This is ever the view of the non-believer. God's words are lies that keep you from conforming to the expectations of the world you live in and from enjoying life on your own terms, a concept that began early in human history, according to Genesis 3, verse 4, referring back to Satan, um, saying, did, did God really say that to you? Does God really want to keep something from you? I love this line on multiple levels. One is because Pharaoh does stand as a representative of the world for us, just like Babylon will later. And then in Revelation, we see references back to both Egypt and Babylon that it it really does represent the world power and the world orders calling us to submit uh, fundamentally to the values of the culture, whatever the culture might say are the values. Whereas we, as the people of God, are called to be distinct. It's something we lose if we're not careful in how we read the New Testament is that Paul repeatedly called people to be distinct from yes he said in first timothy for example with respect to overseers have a good opinion amongst outsiders but throughout all of his letters he's saying don't you dare be mingling or seen as equal with the outsiders remove yourself from their pagan worship remove yourself from the temple licentiousness Remove yourself from all the idolatry and worship. Be radically distinct from, in the exact same way that Yahweh calls Israel to be radically distinct from all the pagan surrounding nations from them. And so 
Satan uses lies to attack our people. And the way I understand this um, comes through something I read from Chris Brooks. I don't know where he got it from. Maybe he made it up. Uh, I don't know, but it's really good. But it talks about core lies and core truths. That God has designed us with a certain hardwiring and a certain calling. And that is the truth. But we diverge from that so frequently because we are not properly in tune with the spirit. We don't respond well to the quickening of the spirit. So we chase other things that aren't what we were designed for, that aren't what our calling is. And then we fail at those things many times. Or we succeed at those things and they leave us empty. Either way, we come to a point where um, it, where we don't feel the value, we don't feel the worth anymore. And then we look as if something's wrong with us. From that stems guilt and shame and all the rest. And so here's how Satan works. He lies to us about what God has called us to. He encourages us to pursue those lies. We do that and then we ultimately fail at them. And I say ultimately on purpose because, again, you could succeed by worldly standards but still fail by being empty, valueless, and feeling worthless at the end. But we ought to fail because none of that is true. So we ultimately fail at what we ought to fail at. And yet in those lies, we heap up guilt and shame upon ourselves and we become useless for the kingdom of God. So we as teachers have to constantly be pushing people to understand who has God made you to be? What has God called you to do? And we know the answers. God has made you to glorify him and God has called you to expand his kingdom by making disciples. So we keep that image in front of them and help them to internalize, articulate, and gain clarity on their particular callings. Uh, how does that look for you? Maybe in this work scenario, uh, maybe God's put you in this neighborhood and you're calling to disciple your neighbors. Maybe it's to get some family members. But we help them understand the specific out of the general. But if we don't paint the picture well for them of this general calling, what's your core truth? Your core truth is you're a child of God. And by that, you can give glory and worship to God in all that you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. And you're called to expand his kingdom, to increase our family of faith. That is the general truth of what this thing is about. That we live lives glorifying to God by daily being in worship and then by expanding the kingdom. And then we do that more specifically by making disciples, um, making disciples of all peoples. So paint that picture for them. Uh, don't help them to not think that their lack of conforming to the expectations of the world are a failure. Help them to understand that Satan and the world order and the cultural powers are against them. They are chasing them down to suffocate and destroy them. And don't believe the lies. You're a child of God. You've been called to something more. So I'll get off the uh, I'll get off the soapbox for a second. But like I said, I just don't know where else it's going to come from if we don't do it. So it's either non-existent or we as teachers need to start talking a little more this way. And we don't want to give Satan too much power, too much credit. I mean, we know God is sovereign. I mean, that's part of the Exodus account that we're going through. God is always in control here. None of his plans are thwarted. So we know God is the victor. We know Christ has secured the victory. We know Christ is going to come back and claim it um, in the sense of his eternal kingdom. Nevertheless, Satan is active, right? So we don't want to give him too much power as if he has authority over us in some ways. But we do want to make very real that he has authority over a lot of people who are submitting their will to him, not to 
the person and work of Jesus. And so we, while we don't want to elevate his power to the point that we're afraid of him in in that sense, I mean, the other theme here, and I'll hit it in a second, is fear God. But we do want to say that he is active, he is on the hunt, he is claiming people for himself, and we're called to go pull them out of that darkness. And by demonstrating for them in our daily walks and by preaching the gospel to them, we bring light to people. So I mentioned fear is an unintentional segue, but I'll take it while I'm here, is that that's the other part of this, is that Pharaoh, this Pharaoh also doesn't fear the Lord. And so we had in the initiation, so the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapters 2, the midwives, Moses' um, parents really, but the midwives are the ones that are called by name and said that they feared God more than Pharaoh. So Pharaoh gave this edict to murder all the firstborn. The midwives feared God, didn't fear Pharaoh. And then we come back here and we see Pharaoh not fearing the Lord. Is that Pharaoh says, who, who is this Yahweh that I ought to be worried about him and I ought to adjust what I think ought to be happening based on this guy? Um, there's clearly no fear there. And we also see the continued fear uh, of being overthrown. So again, this goes way back to a number of weeks ago, but that the foreign rule of the Semitic peoples there for five centuries before the Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph came into power, he was probably a pure-blood Egyptian, and he feared foreign rule again, and which is why he started oppressing them in the first place. Well, this new Pharaoh doubles down on it, and we can see that in verse 5. Look, the people of the land are so numerous, and you would stop them from their labor. So again, there's a lot of people there, and we're going to keep them working uh, because we will not let foreign rule happen again. I do want to tie in one thing from last week. I spent a lot of time talking about the hardening of Pharaoh's hearts and how sometimes there can be a tension in our people about why is God keeping this Pharaoh from doing the right thing? Why is God hardening him against doing the right thing? I think this text in particular, um, in particular the beginning of chapter 5, is so significant for understanding the overall context of the heart hardening. Because it's in the beginning of chapter 5 that Pharaoh reveals who he really is. So draw your group's attention to this. Uh, Why does God harden him later? Because he hasn't fundamentally changed from being this guy. What guy? The guy who says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? I don't know the Lord and I won't let Israel go. And I'm going to double down on all their work. Um, And I'm going to make them suffer and oppress them even harder now. That's, That's him. That's his true essence, his true heart. Uh, his true character and just because pain comes upon him and he wants to stop it doesn't mean he's fundamentally changed anything about who he is or fundamentally changed his character in any way so highlight that for your people if they are the sort that are struggling with the hardening of pharaoh's heart and say this is the guy god's dealing with this is the guy who will not truly repent and he will not truly relent from his oppression of god's people So God is right and just and at liberty to use him to demonstrate his power over all of the Egyptian gods, over Pharaoh himself, and to reconcile his people and others, the world, to himself. The beginning of chapter 5 is a great way to leverage and encourage your people to keep this in their mind later when they're uncomfortable, later when they're a little bit sensitive to God hardening Pharaoh's heart, drive them back to chapter 5. Um, these verses 1 through 4. 
It may be worth a stop on verse 10 to talk about the uh, straw. And Pharaoh says, I'm not going to give you straw anymore. You got to go find that for yourselves. And you got to keep making the same number of bricks that we've always made. Uh, Reason being is because the, the, the way I understand it from reading a couple of different commentaries is that essentially after the fields were harvested, you would have these stalks, the inedible parts of the plants. These long stalks were just maybe like the bud would be all you would take and then you have this long stalk left. But those were, as they were harvested, would would have been bundled and these would have been used for straw. And what Pharaoh is saying here is that, no, you're not allowed to use that anymore. You need to go back and pick up whatever little pieces are attached to any roots and then just rummage around and just find whatever you can be used as a straw substitute. So even if they were to find enough of this stuff it still wouldn't have been the same quality of bricks anyway and so it's just an incredible amount of work and misery he's pouring on the people i think one way we play off of this increased burden of the israelites and collecting the straw substitute that was so difficult is thinking about some of the yoke and burden texts of jesus where he says my burden is easy and my yoke is light why Well, because he's already done all the work for us. And so the day-to-day living of the faith is not simple. And Christ warned us of that, right? So we think in terms of Luke uh, 8.31. Take up your cross daily and follow me. To take up one's cross is a very serious matter. It doesn't mean it's always going to be an easy matter. But Jesus says in, in the more broad understanding of being reconciled to the Godhead, being found as a child of God, being set righteous, That my burden is easy and my yoke is light. And that's true because he's done it all for us. And so we can see the wayward individual seeking righteousness by their own hand in the struggle of the Israelites. I'm I'm almost going too allegorical here, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it anyway. So we understand Pharaoh as a type of Satan here, as a type of world power, trying to get us to conform to that rather than to the kingdom of God, increases his burden, says, hey, You need to produce, 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 and I'm going to make it as hard as I can on you. And this is the world saying to us that here's what a success is, having these things, material possessions or what have you. Here's what a success is, being able to retire here. Here's what a success is, um, achieving a certain status in definition by the world's standards. And we see people who chase those things and they are just like the Israelites looking and scrounging for bits and pieces of vegetative stubble that's left over from harvest that they can put all together into a pile and maybe make a brick out of it. That is people following the lie of Satan. And that are people trying to earn their salvation, trying to declare themselves righteous based on their own autonomy, values, effort, and worth. And as we tie that to Jesus, Jesus says, no, my burden is easy. My yoke is light. I've done it. Attach yourself to me. I'll walk. I'll guide you. Uh, like if we, if we understand a yoke where they would put the old ox with the young ox and the old ox would dictate as they were strapped together. Christ says, strap yourself to me and I'll, I'll walk. I'll carry you here. Just just go the way I'm going. And it's not it's not as bad as you think it's going to be. And I think that's so true. So we have to elevate that the daily grind isn't always easy, but being reconciled to God is very easy. Give up. 
submit yourself to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Stop being on your hands and knees, crawling through a field, looking for little bits of stalk still attached to a root to try to make a brick out of it. Stop being that person. Be the person that submits to Jesus Christ, who has already done the work for you, and receive the Holy Spirit to empower you to do great things for the kingdom of God. That's the image we want to paint for people. So the last thing I want to point out in all of this is the response when the Israelite foremen went back. So you would have the the Egyptians would be the taskmasters, and then so like those would be the large managers of groups and managers of managers, and then under them would be Israelite people, and they would manage the specific uh, work details, I guess, of the slaves as they would try to the Israelite slaves as they were trying to produce this work. We just know that the response to the hope was. Ah, our deliverer Moses, he did these awesome signs, staff to snake, hand leprous, hand not leprous. Look at the sovereignty of God. Look at the majesty of God. Moses is here to deliver us. Water to blood. We're in. Let's do this thing. Moses goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh doubles down their workload, makes it impossible, tries to beat them into submission. And their response coming out of the conversation with Pharaoh is incredibly interesting. And so that I'm starting, I'm going to go from verse 19 here of chapter 5. The Israelite foremen saw that they were in trouble when they were told, you cannot reduce your daily quota of bricks. When they left Pharaoh, they confronted Moses and Aaron, who stood waiting to meet them. And so I think that the image in my head, at least, is that Moses and Aaron are sort of outside the building, maybe on the corner, like, okay, they're in there talking. We can't wait to get this report. Surely Pharaoh's going to submit now. And then they come back out to Moses and Aaron, and here's what they say in verse 21. May the Lord take note of you and judge, they said to them, because you have made us reek to Pharaoh and his officials, putting a sword in their hand to kill us. What's incredible is that they don't doubt the truth and the power of Yahweh. What they're doubting is Moses' prophetic status in all of this. They don't come out and say, oh, God's not real because it didn't work out. They come out and essentially say, may God judge you because you misinterpreted, you misunderstood God uh, in all of this. I just think that's, that's very interesting. Um, I don't know where I ultimately want to go with that, but I guess it just demonstrates that the Israelites were at least a nominally faithful people that continued to see the truth of their God, but had continuously doubted Moses. And we're going to see that continued doubting all throughout the rest of the Exodus, uh, where they're just perpetually doubting Moses. Why did you take us out of Egypt? We wish we were back there now. And then on and on it goes. They never really, they never doubt the existence of Yahweh. Um, now they will bring in other idols at times, but they never doubt the existence and truth of Yahweh. But they are willing to diverge from him at times, and they certainly are willing to reject his prophets. So maybe the lesson in there for us is that, hey, as we teach faithfully the scripture, because that's where our authoritative power is, that's what we can know to be true, that there's going to be times we're going to be rejected as well. And there's times that we're going to be rejected by our own people as well. And we need to turn ourselves into the Lord uh, as as much as we possibly can. Moses' response was, Lord, why have you caused trouble for this people? And why did you send me? So he's saying, I told you before, they aren't going to buy it. It ain't going to work. And yet you sent me anyway. Um, All it did was cause trouble for the people. But the Lord replies to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of a strong hand, he will let them go. And because of a strong hand, he will drive them from this land.
And so the same goes for us as teachers. We're called to preach the word to the people as the Holy Spirit convicts that word and empowers people on the basis of that word to do the great work of making disciples of Jesus who then go and make other disciples of Jesus and on and on it goes. So we want to teach in such a way that our people incarnate and live out the scriptures that we present to them. And there's going to be times where we're rejected. There's going to be times where people don't like what we have to say. But here's our litmus test. Are we being faithful to the text? And if we are, we can trust that we are representing God fairly and challenging our people fairly. So that even when our own people reject us and we turn to the Lord and say, Why did you tell me to teach this group of people? All they're doing is rejecting what I have to say to them. Then we can trust that the Lord says, Wait and see what I'm going to do with you. I've sent you there. I called you there. Stick with it. Be faithful. Be loyal. Be obedient. And watch what I do with this stiff-necked people. Uh, That's the life of a teacher. 